Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Alex Kalanokas and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome to the latest episode in our mini-series running over the 2022 Formula One Summer Break, another series of debates over the greatest drivers at various Grand Prix squads. And this time, it's BRM. But before we dive into the top 10 ranking on this episode, I'm coming first to the person who's put the list together, Autosport's Chief Editor, Kevin Turner. Now, Kev, we're coming back to a topic very close to your heart, an F1 squad from the World Championship's infancy or the year, the years of its infancy. How much did you enjoy putting the list together? Um, yeah, these I think I've said before, the second series has been harder because these teams have got uh, more mixed histories, shall we say, than the obvious teams that we did in the first series. Um, so it's um, I, I actually um, I actually hurriedly put a provisional list together at the start of the year for BRM and showed it to our guest, whereupon it became rapidly obvious I need to go away and uh, have a bit more of a think about it. So I then spent quite a long time going over you know, books and reports and actually speaking to the Owen family because they still own BRM and they're actually doing a bit of a push at the moment because it's 60 years since, uh, since Graham Hill won the World uh, Drivers' Championship and... BRM on the constructors' title, um, and they've had a had a uh, they've built chassis 
four, they, as they call it, of the, of the V16s. Um, so that'll be doing the rounds at various events. I went to see it at Shelsley Walsh a few weeks ago and it sounded absolutely fantastic, V16 engine. So, um, yeah, it seemed a good time to, to, to look at BRM. Um, you know, still up there, you know, uh, with 17 World Championship Grand Prix wins and various non-championship wins as well. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was good to come back to it, but it's definitely more challenging this second series. Now to introduce uh, our second guest, which is a welcome back to the Autosport podcast for one of Britain's leading motorsport commentators, Ian Titchmarsh. How are you, Ian? I'm pretty good, thanks very much, Alex. Yeah, it's good to be involved in another one about the good old BRM. Uh, I can actually claim to have seen a BRM in period. Uh, I saw Peter Collins in the, in the uh, V6 Entry in 1955. So, uh, and I can still just about recall the sound that it made going down railway straight. Uh, it, it won the race because the P25, which we'll come to obviously when we're talking, um, wasn't had had an accident in practice. That's right, and so he had to drive the V6. See, what a shame! We didn't know it was just about. I think it was its penultimate race that. Indeed. Well, Ian, I, I wondered whether um, whether you'd like to just comment on this, but Kev, maybe you could uh, you could also add in as well. Um, Ian, could you just give the listeners a bit of a summary on the BRM and what it stood for during its lifetime? Because it's got quite an interesting history. Like there's lots of expectation and various failures. Uh, Autosport magazine is it's pretty scathing when it comes to a lot of its failures. In the words of Gregor Grant, it contributed to the demise of F- F1 itself in 1952 with the use of the F2 cars alongside sort of high costs of car building and the, the nearly ob- obsolete Alfa Romeo being withdrawn but ultimately comes good scores some famous wins so yeah what it what is uh, what is brm well yeah what is brm um a number of different types of car very different types of car but it had its origins with the era uh which was the car designed by reed relton uh engined by peter burson who was the great mate of raymond mays uh, and they put together the era which is essentially for what used to be called voiture racing small car racing um not Grand Prix racing before World War Two, and at the end of World War Two, Raymond Mays thought, "Well, the ERA kind of caught on and was a good good idea. Um, let's try and get a British car because uh, uh, there were no other British cars around that were competitive uh, with the Italians, which were essentially Alfa Romeo, as you mentioned, Maserati, and within a space of a year or so, Ferrari as well." Um, and so he he was very good at charming money out of sponsors, and there was the BRM Trust set up. Um, uh, and Peter Burson set about designing a car to comply with the then current Formula One, which was one and a half litre supercharged or four and a half litre unsupercharged engines. Uh, and uh, the uh, design that he went for involved a 16 cylinder engine. Now, Auto Union had done that before the war, but 16 cylinders was uh, asking an awful lot. This is in the days of, of austerity after the Second World War. There wasn't a lot of money around. Um, materials were difficult to get hold of. And so the whole thing took a very long time. And uh, Raymond Mays was a well-known figure in British motor racing. He, he'd been a very successful driver before the war, hill climb champion and so on. Um, so he had a lot of goodwill. Uh, but as years literally went by, I mean, the first appearance of the BRM uh, was in the hands of, uh, well, Raymond Mays did a demonstration before the Grand Prix in 1950. Um, it should have been in the Grand Prix, that's what it was built for, but it, it just wasn't ready. Um, international trophy, Raymond Sommer, the well-known French driver, uh, tried to start the car at the start of the race and the transmission failed. And it was at that point that the British public had been one, waiting for this wonder car to appear, this wonderful British car that was going to beat the world, um, started throwing coins into the cockpit um, in, in derisive you know, uh, comments on, on the car. Um, by the time 
the car was sorted, uh, it was too late because uh, Alfa Romeo had retired at the end of 1951 from racing, leaving Ferrari as the only other manufacturer of a car that complied with the current Formula One. So the uh, FIA decided that to run the World Championship, we'd have to rely on the Formula Two cars, the two-litre and supercharged cars. Uh, and the BRM, really, most of the time, had nobody to race against. Um, Ferrari would turn up with a car for anything, so it had a couple of four-and-a-half-litre um, V12s to race. Um, but with no Alpha, uh, there was no World Championship, really. And so the, the BRM was um, just too late on parade, really. Uh, it, it, it didn't have an effective race until 1952. By then, uh, down in the southwest corner of France, the um, Albi organisers, the Albi Road Race, uh, were still prepared to run a race for Formula One cars. BRMs went in for that um, and did quite well. Uh, they still didn't win, uh, but they, they won a heat. Uh, and the car... Uh, I've just been rereading for the, before this the uh, book by Raymond Mays about BRM, and he says it's one of the, I think Kevin's quoted it in his um, words, he's written about this. Uh, one of the proudest moments of his life, the car achieved what it said actually. Well, it hadn't. Um, it, it, it was racing in uh, non world championship races, and after Albi, it went and raced in um, Formula Libre events, basically in the UK, against mixed opposition. Have I gone on long enough now? Because we haven't really gone on to the next sort of BRM, which is the P25, but that's a, just let somebody else chip in. A lot of the time, a lot of the BRM history, like they did try innovation. They always tried to stick to British engineering. They didn't really want to bring in outside suppliers, so they tried to stick to that original ethos for a long, long time. They did their own engines in the way that, that Ferrari did. I think they often overreached themselves for one reason or another. So, yes, Ian's just described there why the V16 was a failure. The P25, which is the four-cylinder car that followed, took an absolute age to become competitive as well. The golden age of BRM, from my point of view, I think, is the 1500cc era of, of Formula 1. Uh, and they had, obviously, the one that won the championship with the P57, and then the P261 was very successful. They were just outdone, really, by Jim Clark and, and Colin Chapman, um, but they were a major Formula 1 team at that period. They then lost their way a bit towards the late 60s. There's lots of management changes, uh, and part of that change was Tony Southgate coming in. He designed them a modern Formula 1 car in the P153, which uh, we'll get onto obviously some of this later on with the drivers, but that's that kind of got BRM back to winning again. And the P160, I think, is the last great BRM. Um, uh, V12 powered, same as the 153. And then after that, they really they didn't have the money and the investment. Louis Stanley was uh, anyone I've spoken to about him has uh, their enthusiasm for him is very much in check as a team boss. Uh, and eventually they faded away. The last three seasons they were actually run as. Uh, Stanley BRMs because he wanted to carry on even though the Owen family didn't want to support it anymore so it's a very much a, a disaster finally then coming good a bit of a wobble a little bit of a hurrah at the end Indian summer and then fading into obscurity so that's a very whistle stop tour through the uh, two or three decades of BRM yeah, uh, just to, to, because he doesn't really come under the category of driver, so we need to talk about Louis Stanley quickly. Um, to be fair to Big Lou, as Dan Gurney christened him and everybody then afterwards called him, uh, he did bring two very big sponsors to motor racing, the second one being Marlborough, the first one being uh, Yardley. Um, and he also was the one who backed Graham Hill, 
because they got to the point in 1960 uh, when uh, Graham Hill was one of the drivers um, and they were getting so fed up with the way in which uh, Peter Burson ran the engineering side of the team uh, that they wanted to bring in Tony Rudd uh, and they needed the support of Louis Stanley who was married to uh, uh, his wife Jean was the sister of Sir Alfred Owen um, and therefore was a part owner of BRM uh, and uh, she allowed Louis, her husband, to um, ha have an influence in the way things went. And it was a good influence for a long time. And uh, Big, Louis gets, Big Lou gets a lot of criticism, and he certainly didn't organise a racing team very effectively. But other aspects of the whole business, I think he did very well. And, of course, he was one of the leading lights behind the safety and motor racing movement that Jackie Stewart was involved with. Um, and, and Louis Stanley led the way there, I think. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's a lot of the criticism of him, I think, is uh, sort of speaking to people like like Southgate and Rick Hall, of course, who now at Hall and Hall, but did work there actually mm, at yes. VRN during that period, was uh, this sort of slightly, like wanted to run too many cars for a start. You know, yes. like Tony Southgate said that at one stage he was running five cars and he couldn't remember yeah. what setups he'd done on each one. Uh, and he had to start using a dictaphone to remind himself in the pit lane as to who had what when they were coming in and out of the pits. And I think there was a feeling, had they focused on running, you know, one or two cars properly and having a test programme uh, and what, but what they really needed as well was a new engine. By by nineteen sort of into seventy two, they needed a new a new engine. I mean, Tony says that there were twelve V twelve engines that were doing the rounds between the chassis, and by the time he left, there was only one that didn't have a hole in the block, basically. So, well, uh, that engine, that engine was devised for sports car racing. Um, the 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 main Formula One engine for the three liter Formula One was meant to be the H sixteen, which is essentially two V eights flattened out. Um, and that was just so heavy, it was ridiculous, and it wasn't really a competitive car in the 1967 uh, 67 season in particular was when it was the, the main team car for Jackie Stewart and Mike Spence. Um, uh, and uh, the V12 was, was meant to be a commercial project to sell to people who wanted to build three of sports cars. Uh, and because the, v, the, flats, the, sorry, the H16 was so useless, um, ineffective, they had to use Nismus, the V12. And so the fact that it was still going reasonably well in 1971, it won Grand Prix in 71, um, I think is a testament to the soundness of the design. Oh, Tony's Tony's very complimentary about it. He said that um, it was very it was very smooth in seventy one. Mm, it was yes. pretty much as powerful as a. I think Cosworth eventually obviously kept on developing the DFV, um, but no, he said that you know, it was a good engine. He said it was actually quite compact and light for a V twelve as well. So no, it was a it was a it was a good engine. It was a good engine in the way that the A sixteen definitely wasn't. Quite the insight into into BRM. Check out Autosport magazine later on in the year for more detail. Um, but now let's uh, let's get on into the top ten drivers and Kev's list. So just before we do that, here's a reminder for the listeners of how we arrange these episodes. For each entry, I'll introduce the driver in question and summarise their BRM career, which just because obviously it's quite a complex history, this time it includes various non-F1 World Championship races that they also competed in for the team. And then Kev, you're going to explain why that driver is in that slot. Then for each discussion, Ian, you're going to be assessing uh, Kev's reasoning and logic, disagreeing with, with his choices. Uh, and then as we go, we'll assess the drivers that didn't quite make the cut. So... Starting off at number 10, we've got Peter Gethin. Race for BRM between 1971 and 1973. Started 23 races. That's 15 in the World Championship, eight non-championship. Uh, took two wins. Again, one in the World Championship and one non-championship race. So, Kev, 
Why is Gethin for you at number 10? So it's it's quite, uh, as I say, it's quite difficult. Number 10 is always one of the more tricky ones because it's who you leave out. Uh, and it's, you know, the main criteria you've got to weigh it up really is the impact at the team, obviously, is one that we look at. Uh, success scored is another longevity, which can work both ways, of course. Um, you want to be at a team for a, a long time contributing, but obviously if you don't succeed, then that's that's not great. So that can work in either department. And, you know, I'll be honest, and I'm sure Ian will, will, will jump in with alternatives here, but I, I, I went for Gethin because he did win the 1971 Italian Grand Prix. And not only was it a victory for, for BRM, but it, it's a very significant race in World Championship history, a very famous one. It was a it was the uh, then record average speed of 150.76 miles an hour, which stood for, I think, over 32 years. I think it was broken in 2003. Uh, and I would say that it's still the closest F1 World Championship race in history. They, they only timed them to hundreds then instead of thousands. So you could have a debate about a couple of other races as well. But I think think the fact that 0.61 seconds covers the top five um I, I, I think would make it would make it the closest um I guess the rest of the time at BRM he's there at the wrong moment really he arrives towards the end of 71 um and they've already lost Pedro Rodriguez and they're about to lose uh Joe Siffert he has actually he killed in the, the other race that Gethin won at Brands Hatch um I wouldn't put too much significance on that because it was a shortened race and you know, a very dark day for, for BRM, but he, he sort of, you know, he stayed with them. Um, he didn't really achieve an awful lot more after that, um, but he makes it in ahead of some other uh, drivers that we could have at 10, which I'm sure Ian will will mention in a moment, because he, di- he did achieve something, whereas I think some of the others that had longer BRM careers, they didn't quite get the job done. Um, so, yeah, he, he just squeaks in at 10 for me. Part of the function of a driver in BRM, it obviously to me, was was inspiring team spirits. They, 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 if they had a, a, a positive effect on the team, sometimes it was by their results, sometimes it was by their personality, sometimes the number of years they've been there had a part to play in it as well. But I, I don't really take issue. I mean, there are a number of drivers, as you say, Kevin, who could be in the top 10 uh, at 10th, 9th or 10th. Um, and Peter Gessin... Um, salvaged his career really in Formula One. He was a very, very good driver. He was uh, the, the Formula 5000 champion, uh, UK champion in the first two years in the British Championship, uh, driving for driving a McLaren. Uh, and he, he started his Formula One career with McLaren, but it was going nowhere. I don't think he saw eye to eye with Teddy Mayer, uh, who ran McLaren in those days. Um, and so he was the beneficiary um, of a tragedy because uh, he was the replacement for Pedro Rodriguez, uh, who had... Uh, lost his life a few months earlier and he was brought into the BRM team uh, and to use a good old cliche he hit the ground running because at Monza um, he disregarded rev limits Tony Southgate had said don't go over 11-3 or something like that and he went up to 12 uh, it was a beautiful description of him if I could dare mention a journalist who doesn't write really for autosport uh, Dennis Jenkinson about it was the old club racing British scrapping on Brands Hatch short circuit that came to the fore when he was scrabbling for the lead at the final corner of the Parabolica on the last lap um, in this slipstreaming clump of cars five or six cars um, heading to the finish um, uh, and he, he held on to the, the, the beyond the red limit, the engine held together, and he pipped Ronnie Peterson by virtually nothing at all. Um, it, it, was a, a, it was a great boost, and then on the back of that, they went to the victory race post the end of the World Championship season at Brands Hatch. Um, Joe Siffert qualified on pole position, and Peter was, I think, next to him. Uh, they were certainly both on the front row in the BRM. So it's just how potent the BRM was. Uh, at that time, 
uh, and they found reliability as well. Uh, and he went off into the lead. Um, we'll, we'll come to the Joe Sifford accident, I suppose, later on, So because he's later in the list, to give a little secret away. Um, so we'll talk about Joe Sifford later and the circumstances of the accident. But the fact is, that at the time, the race had to be stopped because of the accident. Uh, Peter was leading. Um, subsequently, of course, he won what was essentially a Formula One race with Formula 5000 participation, um, the race of champions at Brands Hatch um, in 1973 uh, with the Chevron Formula 5000 car. So a very good driver, uh, uh, you know, without sort of damning the fake praise, I think he's as good as any to be 10th, yeah. Well, let's come on to a driver who did get a very significant result for BRM at number nine. It's Joe Bonnier. Uh, Gave BRM its first F1 World Championship win in the 1959 Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort. He raced for the team between 1958 and 1960, started 24 races. That's 17 in the World Championship and seven outside it. Uh, His only victory for the team was that race at Zandvoort. So Kev, why is Bonnier at number nine? So initially he was higher on the list because of the significance of that win. Um, but if you look beyond that, there's not, a, you know, I don't think he was, um, he was an absolute top performer of, of the day. He was you wouldn't have had him in, in division one of your driver list, I don't think. Um, and, uh, yeah, he probably didn't drive the team and inspire the team in a way that some of the drivers that we'll get to higher up on this list are. However, it was a major day, uh, in BRM history to take that, finally take that first world championship victory more than a decade since the project <laughs> project had started. BRM had done a lot of testing at Zandvoort. They always seemed to go quite well there anyway. Um, and he was in the mix all day. Um, he was probably a little bit fortunate to win in the end because I suspect Sterling Moss would have beaten him in the end with the Cooper had he not had transmission problems. But, but um, you know, Bonnier had had, you know, one, I guess one of his day of days, if you like, was always up, up, near, the, up near the front. Uh, and he got that victory, which meant an awful lot to, to Raymond Mays and the team. You know, I think they could almost quite believe it by the time they finally, they finally got that result. Um, you know, he was outpaced subsequently, by Graham Hill and Dan Gurney, which I don't think you would really be surprised about if you're doing a list of all-time Grand Prix drivers. So I, I sort of slipped him further and further down the list the more I sort of thought about it. But I thought on pure, the, you know, the pure importance of that day at Zandvoort, I thought he had to be in there somewhere. And because it was the first one, I thought it had to pip uh, Peter Gethin's sole World Championship Grand Prix win as well. Well, I suppose I, I, I would say this, wouldn't I, having been brought up on the data of British racing, uh, that Peter Gethin uh, should go ahead of Joe Bonnier. They both had one-off wins. Um, but uh, Joe Bonnier struck me as being a, a very talented driver who wasn't hungry because he came from a very wealthy family. Uh, and he had the ability to win Grand Prix. I mean, he wasn't just Zandvoort. He, he, he led at Monaco, for example. He was always very quick at Monaco, but then seemed to fade. Um, and, and so he had his. Uh, he won the Formula 2 German Grand Prix in 1960 on, on the, the in Re- I mean, he, he, he won the Tiger Florio uh, when even Jenks got enthusiastic about it um, because he, he, he just didn't produce... He, he always raced at a certain league, at a good level, but he didn't produce those star turns that justified him being um, considered as one of the all-time greats or anything like that. But whether he should be ninth or tenth, certainly he shouldn't be any higher. Although the significance of the win, I think you could argue that not only might Sterling Moss have won the race, but for the mechanical failure of his car. Um, but you could have put three or four other drivers in that BRM that day and they would have won the race. 
because uh, the BRM was the right car in the right place at the right time. Well, moving on to number eight, Kev's got Jean-Pierre Beltois. He drove for BRM between 1972 and 1974, started 45 races. That's 40 in the World Championship and five outside it, taking two victories. Again, one in the World Championship and one outside it. So, Kev, why is he at number eight? Well, initially he was in the list, again, for a one-off reason, because... To my mind, the 1972 Monaco Grand Prix is one of the great one-hit wonders in Formula 1 history. Um, so it was a wet, wet race, started fourth, came through to the lead straight away and disappeared down the road. And only Jackie Ix, who is an acknowledged rainmeister, finished on the same lap. So as a one-off performance, it's you know, it's outstanding. But I was fortunate enough to have a conversation with uh, Tony Southgate at a recent BRM event and I and I sort of said to him you know how, how much of a blow was it losing Pedro Rodriguez and Joe Siffert you know were you a bit you know did, were you lacking a, a top-notch driver after that and he said well actually yeah Beltrals was very good he was good to work with um he yeah he he was quick he did lead the team and that was a time when BRM had an awful lot of teammates <laughs> for that period at, at various points obviously the car's reliability did sort of fall away he, he joined as it was just sort of going going a bit wrong really but he was a more consistent points threat in 73 than Nicola and Clay Regazzoni. Uh, he took the team's final podium at 74 in South Africa with the P201. Um, so actually he was sort of a, a the lead driver for want of a better word, um, you know, for, for, for that final sort of decline uh, as the V12 got older and older. Um, and as I say, Southgate spoke very highly of him. So um, yeah, he slotted in for me ahead of the other sort of two what you might call uh, one-hit wonders on the list. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. I, I, I think one of his main uh, main problems throughout his Formula One career was his, his arm uh, that had been badly injured in, in a sports car crash in the last 12 hours. Uh, and he was lucky not to lose his arm. Uh, and it was always much weaker than the other one. Uh, on a wet circuit like Monaco, I'm not saying this is all the reason why he showed his disability wasn't it, it wasn't a significant disability it was something he disguised but it was there team will talk about it um as, as something he suffered from uh and that held him back i think he was a hugely talented driver uh and monaco 72 gave him the chance to show what he was capable of against as you say jackie x who was the acknowledged rainmeister uh, and all right, the V12 BRM was probably smoother, but certainly Jackie X was um, in, in a V12 as well. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, no problem with him being where he is. Tony said that they had a, you can always tell an X Beltwell chassis as well because they would cut. They cut a little uh, lip in the chassis for him so that he could rest his rest his elbow because uh, that, mm. that helps him out. So that's a little giveaway whenever you're looking around old BRMs at the uh, so whether it's one of his cars or not. Can't imagine a modern Grand Prix squad accommodating anything for the drivers along those lines, certainly not cutting bits out of it. Uh, but let's move on to the driver at number seven. Much discussed in our top 10 USF1 drivers podcast from earlier on this year. Do go back and find that in our feed if you're enjoying these top 10 podcast uh, episodes. At number seven, it's Richie Ginther. Drove for BRM between 1962 and 1964. Started 41 races. That's 29 in the World Championship and 12 outside it. Didn't take any wins. Kev, why is Ginther at number seven? Oh yeah, he was really difficult to uh, to place, and uh, I know Ian's enthusiasm for Ginther is very much under control as well. So I did have a, I, I knew that this one would be a tricky one, but um, so he didn't he didn't score a win crucially, you know, that, 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 he didn't do that, but he he did score more podiums for BRM than any other driver on this list apart from <laughs> number one. 
Um, he wasn't a team leader, but he was uh, well respected for his test and development work. He'd done that at Ferrari. In fact, that's how he got his job at Ferrari to start with. Um, and then he came across to, to, to BRM. Uh, and he had, yeah, he was a very good, what I'd call a, a support act, perhaps arguably the best support act on this list, perhaps is the way to, is the way to put it. Um, yeah, you could say he was there at the right time, but in 1963, he managed to score in eight of the 10 races, which in those days was almost unheard of. You know, he had good mechanical sympathy. I think he admitted that that was partly because he would hold something back. He didn't, you know, he wasn't a flat out you know top speed kind of driver but he could bring it home um and i think with a different point scoring system brm might have done rather better against lotus which was very much a one car team during that time um as as much as they argued otherwise um so yeah so that 1963 campaign was 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 very strong he helped obviously brm win the constructors title in 62 so he won he helped win constructors titles for two different teams in two consecutive years for in 61 brm 62 64 wasn't wasn't so strong, uh, but he still managed a couple of second places in the P261 before finally finally leaving to join Honda for 65, which is where, of course, he did get his one his one World Championship Grand Prix win. But I just thought being part of BRM when they took you know a, a constructors World Championship and twice second place in the constructors table just just meant that he that he was probably the best number two to slot into this list. I think he has to be in the top ten, yes, but I put him behind. Um, Beltois, John Pierre Beltois had far more driving, natural driving ability. He was a much more of a racer than Richie Ginther, who I think, as Kevin's already anticipated, what I'm going to say, he, he never seemed to be somebody who really got stuck in. Um, yes, at Monaco in the Ferrari in 1961, you could say he did make a uh, put in a fantastic performance there, um, but he had a superior car to those of his teammates, uh, and. He was always slower than Graham Hill. I mean, when he, with whom he was the teammate, and sometimes he was nowhere near Graham Hill. Um, uh, and although the stats are not unfavourable to him, I mean, Kemp has already said he scored um, points in all but two races in the '63. In '64, he finished every race. Again, going back to the, um, I think probably also right to say that. Under the current today's world championship scoring points, he would have scored points in every race as well. He was in the top ten, in other words. But in those days, he only got him down to six points, down to sixth place. I find him uninspirational, I suppose, and uh, I, 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 I just find it difficult to see him as high as seventh. Um, uh, there's a very good biography of him that was written, a couple of, published a couple of years ago. Um, that provides a good insight into him. It's, it's, it's not all lavishing with, with um, praise. I mean, it's a very good book, um, well worth reading about racing as it was then and about Richie Ginther in particular. But I think seventh is a bit high. Kev had a good look over his shoulder for the listeners just to see if he's got the book on his book. Oh, I have got the book. It found? Um, uh, no, I, it's got the Mike Spence book, which was the follow-up <laughs> behind me, but not the uh, the Ginther one. But yes, I echo uh, Ian's, Ian's uh, comments on, on digging that book out and giving it a read. Well, let's uh, let's move on to another driver who didn't take any wins for BRM, but he's, he's rather more famous overall. At number six, Juan Manuel Fangio. Five-time world champion, of course, in Formula One. He drove for BRM between 1952 and 1953. Started just six races all outside the world championship. So, Kev, this is going to take a bit of explaining, I think. Why is Fangio at number six? Yeah, it does a bit. Yeah, so BRM, I think probably unique in the lists that we're doing and that I, I couldn't just 
stick to the world championship because they very much ignored the world championship during the formula two era they didn't they weren't they well we're not doing that we're going to carry on developing the, the v16 and making it work um and as ian's already said you know there were certain races a lot of them in the uk um run for Formula Libra or Formula One regulations so they could carry on driving, which meant, of course, that other drivers who were contracted to other teams could come and do those races um, because they were driving in the World Championship and they could come and do them. So you had this slightly bizarre situation where Fangio could be tempted to cross to, to, well, first of all, test the V16. And I understand that he set the fastest uh, fastest lap at their, their testing venue that anyone had ever set before, which is perhaps not a great surprise. Um, but really, this is all about this is all about impact and the amount of confidence that Fangio helped give the team. I think after you know a very difficult, you know, very difficult sort of uh, development period, very long period for this car. Um, you know, he may said he was the first driver to completely master it. Fangio is later believed to have said that it's the most fabulous car he ever raced because it was hugely powerful, over 500 brake horsepower from one and a half litre supercharged engine. If they could have got it working sooner, it really could have been something. Um, and uh, for Mays, one of the big days, in fact, he puts a whole chapter in his book that, uh, that that Ian mentioned earlier on to the 1953 Albi GP, which was run for Formula 2 and Formula 1 cars. They had a heat for Formula 1, a heat for Formula 2, and then the, the best of those were put into the final. What made it a great race, really, was that Ferrari decided, or in May's eyes at least, Ferrari decided to enter a 375 for Alberto Ascari. Giuseppe Farina was also there in the Thin Wall Special, which was a Ferrari-based car that uh, Tony Vanderville was developing because he got fed up with BRM and ended up uh, obviously doing his own Van Wall operation. So you had the three, the, at that time, the three world champions in the three, effectively the three Formula 1 cars still, that were, that, you know, that were still operating after Alfa Romeo's withdrawal. And Fangio beat Ascari to pole, and then led him in the race before the um, in the heat, and then led him in the race before the Ferrari failed. Um, Fangio won that heat, uh, and Ascari and Farina both fell out. And BRM had three cars there, and they duly looked like they should have uh, they should have finished first, second, and third, really. Um, but the it was the first time that the V16 had run at any great length. Uh, and especially a high-speed circuit. I mean, they were allegedly, they touched 200 miles an hour there, uh, and the tyres couldn't take it. So very much like the pre-war Mercedes and auto unions used to fry their tyres um, when they had power leaps. The BRMs did the same, and they all end, ended up having problems. Um, and so Fangio never actually won a race in the V16, uh, whereas Gonzalez did did do, uh, Reg Parnell, Wharton, and Peter Collins, as, as Ian's mentioned, they all did. But that seems to be, that race... Uh, and again, speaking to the Owen family, that's the one that keeps coming up because I think it's if you're involved in the BRM story, you just want the V16 to happy, have a happy ending. And it doesn't really because, as Ian said, it didn't achieve what it set out to achieve. But that that performance that Fangio put in at least showed that in terms of you know, raw speed, they had got to the level where it could have been a, a World Championship Grand Prix contender. It was just, you know, it was at least, what, two years too late. It's difficult not to put Fangio in the list as a BRM driver, because he, he raced a BRM, had a couple of second places, uh, and he has the reputation and he was the world champion and all that. Um, and he is quoted as saying, what were the words about the most fabulous, most guy, fabulous ever car I've ever driven? He, doesn't, he didn't speak English, so I, I just wonder where <laughs> that quote came from. Uh, it, you know, the, the, the BRM PR organisation was, was pretty good um, for the time, uh, and I can't help thinking that... that uh, 
Fangio was asked a question, do you think this is the most fabulous car you've ever driven? He probably said C uh, or something simple <laughs> like that. I, I, I'm not convinced about that remark, but no doubt I'll, I'll be shown to be wrong about that uh, scepticism. Um, yeah, Fangio BRM, I, I think he, 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 made, he was good for the egos of Peter Burton and Raymond Mays to have him driving for the team. Uh, he, he, he was obviously one of the all-time greats. He, he won the World Championship. Um, but I have a lot of regard for Sterling Moss, and Sterling Moss um, rated the cars as the worst thing he ever drove. Uh, so, uh, and that was in English. He didn't have to have that translated for him. Uh, so I, I, I just um, don't feel that Fangio's contribution uh, was, was all that significant if you look at other drivers who, who made more. But he did, you know, because of his name, uh, add something. Yeah, I think it's a little bit akin to, um, I remember when we did the Williams podcast, Karun Chandhok argued Nelson Piquet, I think, up the list on the basis that he was the first world champion that was attracted, you know, someone who had won the world championship already and then coming to Williams and what boost that was for the team. I think we talked about that when we did the Arrows one as well with with Damon Hill. Um uh, it's kind of it's almost like they bring their own gravitas with them if you like mm. um and mm. I, I guess that's sort of where i'm where i'm coming from with the with the with the fans i think i found him very difficult to place because yeah six <laughs> six non-championship uh f1 uh starts for, for brm but um, I've, I'm, for, for me there's quite a big gap i think between the, the top five on this list and the bottom five because the top five i think for me are much more BRM drivers, if that makes sense. Uh, I know that there'll be one that Ian uh, Ian will probably pick out and try and push further down the list. But I, I yeah, I think that I couldn't put Fangio any higher than six. Let's put it that way. No, no. I mean, I'll be a part. You said that the the the, the BRM was you know, had come good. That was its, it. Wasn't its first long race, of course. The V16 had done the Spanish Grand Prix uh, with with um, Reg Palel and Peter Walker previously, uh, and the British Grand Prix. So. The, the, the car uh, had lasted long distances. Um, yeah, it was a spectacular shootout between Ascari and the Ferrari and Fangio and Gonzalez and Ken Wharton as well, in fact, um, in the BRMs uh, at Albi. It was a one-off race. Um, they had been to Albi the year before, in 1952, uh, and retired. Uh, the BRM only really came good, the V16, uh, as the Mark II version, uh, where... I was able to see one race, Peter Collins drive it at um, Aintree. Uh, Ron Flockhart had a lot of success with that car. Uh, by that time, the BRM, but it was 1954 by then, 1954-55. It was just too late. So to the overall, in the overall scheme of things, I, I don't think Fangio contributed enough to the BRM uh, story to justify where he, where he is. So would you have it as Beltoise 6, Fangio 7, Ginther 8 then? Yeah, I think so. That's that's that's, okay. that's, that's, <laughs> that's worth yes. clarifying. Yeah. Well, let's dive in to the top five that Kev mentioned and to a driver that both Kevin and Ian mentioned earlier. Number five, it's Joe Siffert, sadly killed while driving a BRM at Brands Hatch in late 1971. That was the only year he drove for the team. He did start 15 races, 11 in the World Championship and four non-championship races, taking one win. Why Siffert at number five? Um. So he can't be higher than the teammate that he had at BRM for the first half of that season because Pedro Rodriguez was quicker than him in both Formula 1 and actually the JW Automotive Golf Pulse team. 
uh, much to Sifflet's frustration, I think. Actually, Brian Redmond's quote on that was that they were similar pace, but it's, it's, uh, but uh, Pedro was kinder to the machinery, I think was the way he put it. Um, but in Formula One, Sifflet doesn't tend to match Rodriguez. Um, in 1971 but when Rodriguez is killed uh, in an inter-series race at the Norris Ring and uh, Sifford becomes team leader but and he steps up almost immediately uh, Tony Southgate said to me after losing Pedro Joe instantly went quicker like, we didn't do anything different it was almost like he was released from the shadow of trying to beat you know his rival that that rivalry had really grown up at, in, in, in you know in the Porsche team in world sports car racing and he just seemed free from that and he had his you know fantastic day I did a last year to mark the anniversary of his death I did a obviously did a top 10 Joe Sifford races uh, and you know I put the, the 1971 Austrian Grand Prix he outqualified Jackie Stewart, who really dominated that that season actually in Formula One, um, and he he outran him um, in the race, and then had to had to deal with a slow puncture towards the end. Um, and it was you know obviously an incredibly uplifting day so soon after after losing Rodriguez, and and Sifford kind of maintained that really that not quite that level, but certainly leading the team. Um, even um, but both Peter Geffen and Howden Ganley have said you know said that um, probably Sifford should have won the Italian Grand Prix. But he had a gearbox problem. Um, he uh, and his second place at the at the United States Grand Prix right at the end of the year actually meant that BRM pipped Ferrari to runner up in the constructors' championship behind Tyrrell. Um, so it was. I think he was very much coming to his peak in that post Rodriguez era, if you like, in terms of F one. Sadly, he was then killed in the victory race at Brands Hatch. He qualified on pole, as Ian mentioned earlier, made a bad start and was recovering when he when he was pitched into the barriers approaching Hawthorne. I had a very long chat with Tony about how what the cause of that was, um, which was very interesting. And then when we printed it in the magazine last year, we had quite a few, uh, two or three people come forward to say that they'd been witness to the accident at the time and it didn't tally entirely with their... Uh, with, with what they remember seeing. So quite what caused the accident, the car was, you know, sort of, yeah, pretty badly damaged and burnt so it might be one of those sort of forever mysteries unfortunately but um, yeah it meant that BRM had lost its effectively its second lead driver in four months um, so his impact might have been more had he been uh, yeah had he, had he been able to do more races for, for BRM but yeah a pretty solid fifth for me in this one well we'll come to the final accident and, and how it happened in a, in a moment but just to go back to um, Joseph at rising to the occasion after the death of Pedro Rodriguez, um, I, I can still remember, uh, I think I was watching at Woodcut, qualifying for the 1971 British Grand Prix. Uh, and right at the end of qualifying, or practice as it was called in those days, um, he, he got onto the front row. It was a 3-2-3 front row. And he did this amazing lap to get the car onto the front row. I'm convinced, carrying on the theme that, that Kevin's already started, uh, that this was... Seppi rising to the occasion uh, because Pedro Rodriguez was no longer there. Uh, he, he was now the team leader. It was another classic example of a of a teammate rising to the occasion after the, the death of their uh, colleague. Uh, and and I, I can still remember, uh, Peter Scott Russell was the main Silverstone conversator in those days, uh, and how excited he got. We didn't get instant times in those days, Alex, you might but bear this in mind it wasn't on the, the, the timekeepers had to do their sums and subtract this from that no, no live timing screen and gps tracker i mean i'd be no I'd be nothing lost. like that at all <laughs> right <laughs> so it wasn't instant but i remember when the news came through psr 
uh, getting very excited about it. Quite rightly, it was a tremendous lap, and, and it was the old uh, Silverstone, no chicane at Woodcote and so on. Uh, and that was a great lap. Um, so, yes, uh, he, he, he was, and then he won the Austrian Grand Prix. Um, uh, and going to the accident, he and Ronnie Peterson, he was slow off the line because uh, of the... Uh, I suspect because of the Brands Hatch, uh, the, you know, the notorious slope uh, where pole position is, and that may not have, have helped him off the line. Um, it wasn't as if he was racing at Brands Hatch for the first time because he won the British Grand Prix there in 68, but um, uh, that could have caused the problem for him with the result that he and, and Ronnie tangled briefly. They bumped. Um, and this, this was the Tim Parnell theory that I remember Tim telling me. Uh, he was the team manager at the time. Uh, that that caused a puncture. Uh, now the tyres were all destroyed in the fire of the accident, so it was never possible to. to um, but it was a slow puncture that um, eventually caused the car to go out of control in the way that it did. Uh, now I don't know whether Kevin, you want to elaborate well, on some of the other theories that you've been offered. Well, t- Tony's suggestion, and he he did point out that he'd been on holiday, so he at the time, so he Wasn't could there. only go, he he could only go by what he then went through with the obviously the wreckage got taken back to to he. He then pointed to an incident that Peter Gethin had later where there was this strange phenomenon where they changed tyre companies for 70 and the wheel side, it just wasn't quite the same. And they'd had to, to make them fit properly, they'd had to skim the, the wheels slightly, change the size of the wheel just slightly. Uh, and then they changed back tyre companies again, and but they still had the same wheels because obviously teams in those days kept a lot of the parts from one year to another. And that, that meant that they just weren't so tight fitting. So in certain scenarios... It could you could effectively have a have a sudden deflation as it leaned mm. over on the rim, even yeah. though there was no puncture. So Gethin came back into pits. I think it was a Monza the year after he'd won, uh, and the, and the, the tire technicians there's nothing wrong with the tire. We can pump it up and put it straight back on the car again. And that got Southgate thinking. Ah, oh, I wonder if that's what happened to Joe mm. Brands the year before. But as I say we then had people write in to say, well, we we saw the car go out of control before he'd even got to the turning in point. And it looked more like a, perhaps a breakage at the rear, a suspension or something like that. So I think one thing we can say is it wasn't driver error. I don't think it was a, a, no, a driver error. But whether it was a no, but whether it was a, a failure, a, a puncture or this strange phenomenon, yeah, I think perhaps perhaps we will never know because as you say, sadly the car was yeah, very badly destroyed. Um uh, so yeah, just one of those sort of horrible, you know, horrible days really. So yeah, I, I'm happy to see him fifth. I, he he is a driver who, who, because he drove for quite a few years in his Formula One career for private teams, Rob Walker and Filippinetti before that, uh, and subsequently um, was under you know, his teammates Chris Amon with March. The March wasn't a terribly good car. Um, he, he, he's never really, I don't think, given the credit he deserves. And he was very much a driver who came up from humble origins. Um, he was a wheeler, he was trading cars to pay for his racing. First of all, as a motorcycle racer. And then as a car driver, and then he, he, he wheeled and dealed in cars and became quite wealthy by the end of it all. Oh, digging up spent cartridges from a, an army training field is my favourite story about Sifford. That's absolutely yeah. fantastic. Um, yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, a, a very, um, very interesting character, actually. Yeah. Well, move, 
Moving on to number four on Kev's list, we've got Jean Berra. Drove for BRM between 1957 and 1958. Started 15 races, nine in the World Championship and six outside it, taking two wins, both in non-championship races. So I think we might have a slight uh, disagreement between the two of you about where to place Berra on this list. But Kev, why is he at number four? So he's here really on on impact. Uh, and I will confess that Ian was someone that, ra- that, that that sort of put this to me and I went away and sort of looked into it um, you know, a bit further, really. So... He is his main season is 58, but I think in a way he'd already had his big impact the year before and he'd, uh, he'd entered a BRM under his own eye after a conversation with, with Mays, um, I believe, uh, at the Cannes Grand Prix and he won from pole. And it was an enormous boost for BRM at that point, which was at a really low ebb in 57 after the P25 still wasn't really delivering. Hawth- Mike Hawthorne and Tony Brooks had left in disgust, really. Um, and, yeah, he was a, a bubbly character. I think Mays talks about him as he just always lived, eat, li- you know, lived, ate, breathed motor racing. He was always wanting to talk about the car and he was a really sort of enthusiastic uh, character. Um, he then also did lead a one, two, three in the BRDC International Trophy at Silverstone for BRM. But uh, I mean, it was a in both races the the opposition wasn't quite what you'd say on a, a world championship level. Um, um, but it was really the impact of, of of his arrival, really helping galvanise the team. He did join full time in in fifty eight and and led led at Monaco. Um, uh, he got a podium as well in the Dutch Grand Prix, although behind Harry Shell because he had an ignition problem. Um, but really, unre- BRM still wasn't reliable yet, so he he couldn't really get those get those results. He left to join Ferrari, and unfortunately, that that went wrong. Um, and he 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 was killed in a in a sports car in his own Porsche at Avis. Um, had he not done so, maybe he would have returned back to back to BRM following the you know the Ferrari fallout, and maybe maybe he would then um, have 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 achieved more. But in the end, he didn't. Um, yeah, he didn't win a world championship race. And in fact, um, for series three of the top ten podcasts, I will be doing a list on the uh, the top ten everyone drivers not doing a world championship race, and Bera definitely will be on it. Where he'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll save for that day. But he'll he'll be on it. So yeah, he bumped got bumped, bumped up massively um, once uh, once I looked into more his impact to BRM. But in the end, he just he perhaps wasn't there at the right time to actually get the results that his enthusiasm deserved. He should have spent more time in Liverpool. Uh, now you're wondering why I'm saying <laughs> you that. would say that, <laughs> yeah, because partly because I'm just uh, sitting nearby Liverpool. Um, the relevance of that is two things. One, one is the he won the entry 200 in the, for, for Ferrari in 1959, uh, and that was ahead of Tony Brooks. Obviously, Tony had a slightly smaller engine, um, but nonetheless, I mean that that was a, a Liverpool success for him. Um, but in uh, the 1957 British Grand Prix, again, I, I, I can say this from memory: BRM were absolutely useless. The two BRMs traipsed around at the back of the field. Um, you can look up the names of the drivers of them, but they were just so off the pace, it was ridiculous. A week later, Jean Berra wins the Con Grand Prix in one. Uh, and he, he, that was an enormous boost because the BRM P25 um, had, had potential. Uh, Peter Collins drove in the Gold Cup in 1950, Ilton Park Gold Cup in 55, and it went very well until the failure of the oil pressure gauge misled Collins into the pits. But back back to the revised P25, the car from 1957, um, 58, in which Colin Chapman had had quite a hand in the design of the rear suspension. 
which has had a, a, ben, a, a beneficial effect on the handling, because 56 have been a, a disaster for BRM. It has ended with Tony Brooks being seriously injured in, in a crash at the British Grand Prix, and uh, Mike Hawthorne had walked out on the team. He'd been involved in a crash at Goodwood earlier on in the season uh, when something broke on it. And, and the team were really at rock bottom, even lower than perhaps in the days of the V16. Uh, uh, but this, they got they got themselves a decent driver for the French Grand Prix at Rouen, uh, Herbert Mackay Fraser, who, who went pretty well. Uh, he was American, Brazilian-born American, um, but then he was killed the following weekend in a Formula Two race at Reims, so he wasn't available. So they they ended up with two drivers who were very much what you call journeymen, uh, and they traipsed around at the back of the field. Uh, the, the, making no contribution to the race at all. But Jean Berra, uh, this is the story that Raymond Mays told, he was, they were sitting in the restaurant at the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool the night after the British Grand Prix. And uh, Jean Berra went over to Raymond Mays and said, could I drive, because Maserati aren't going, he was a works Maserati driver at the time, Berra. Um, could I drive for your um, team? Could you make the car available for me at Con next weekend? Because I'm going to get good start money. Um, and Raymond Mays said, that you have just one. They have two cars. Uh, and so they took two BRMs at short notice to Caen, a street, a road circuit in um, France. Uh, and uh, Harry Shell's Maserati had problems. So he was looking for another car to drive. So he drove the other one. Uh, and they promptly went and, and, and won the race. It, it was against not the um, top class opposition, but there was a decent field of, of Maserati 250Fs in particular there. Uh, and Jean Berra won the race. And, and as Kevin's already touched on, he had a huge enthusiasm and passion, but he went both ways. So when it was all up, uh, he was a tremendous force for good, but then he could get demoralized. And th- there were silly things happened not, through no fault of his. He ran over a hare, a Silverstone hare, um, was, was a victim during the British Grand Prix and he got a puncture, uh, came out of the pits. So there was nothing wrong with the car apart from a flat tire caused by the hare. Uh, and um, he just, couldn't be bothered after that. So his, his enthusiasm seemed to uh, diminish as the season went on. And Harry Shell was permanently boisterous and uh, upbeat. Uh, and he kind of achieved better results by the end of the season. But the, con- the, the, the contribution that, that that win at Caen made to the perception of BRM was enormous um, at the time uh, because the cars had been so rubbish um, in, in the results they had just a week earlier at, at entry. So, Ian, would you have Bearer any higher on the list? His contribution was enormous, I think, at the time. And I can remember how the perception of BRM just changed because of that win, even though it happened in France. And I don't know how many pages Autosport gave to it. It probably wasn't more than two, if that, um, the, the, for the report. So it wasn't. It, it, it just he felt the BRM was actually worth something, and it made them believe in themselves. And it went on, and two years later, Joe Bonnier. Uh, one example, as we've already discussed. A big worry isn't. Very good. Well, moving on to the driver at number three, we've got Jackie Stewart. Drove for BRM between 1965 and 1967, started 35 races, 29 in the World Championship and six outside it, taking three wins. That's two in the World Championship and one non-championship race. Kev, why Stewart at number three? No, I kept moving the the two and three around constantly. Uh, I'm a fan of both, by the way. Um, so uh, I think, uh, yeah. So he's got he's got 
the second, I think, highest number of uh, of wins for BRM on this this list. Um, and I would say, I mean, it'd be interesting to know what Ian thinks of this, but I'd say until Lewis Hamilton came along, I think Jackie Stewart's F1 rookie season was probably the best debut season in the World Championship. Um, he won He won the non-championship international trophy, which was his fourth start for BRM and his fifth in F1. He scored four podiums from his, yeah, his first six World Championship starts. Um, he won after teammate Graham Hill made a small mistake at Monza, so he took his first win there. He then won, if we were counting this, because it's, does it count as non-championship F1? Don't know. Tasman title in 66, ahead of Clark and Hill. Uh, and he won the Monaco Grand Prix. So uh, in the BRM context, very successful. I think maybe the reason he dropped behind in the end was the... in the. If you look at, Alex, you've talked about before, you know, rating where the team was when the driver joined and when they left uh, as one of the ways that you could look at it. And you'd have to say that when he left... It was in a worse state than it had been when he joined. But I mean, I don't think that you could blame Jackie Stewart for that, but he wasn't able to stop the H16 aberration, a car he didn't like. He still managed to haul it round to a remarkable second at Spa just a year after he'd been trapped in the car you know, from the downpour. So I don't think you, there's an awful lot left on the table on the, uh, on the driving front, really. Did he galvanise and drive the team forward like the person that's number one on this list? Um, probably not. It could have been second or third for for Stewart, really. I guess the re- one the other reason I put him third is for me. You think Jackie Stewart, and you think you think Tyrrell. I think you do you do think Tyrrell. Maybe you might think of a Tyrrell run Matra. Whereas I think the second person that's just ahead of him on this list in F one terms, I think you think BRM. I mean, actually, you think Porsche nine one seven first, but you think you think probably BRM second. So, um, and I think that BRM was a coming force for the driver that's second on this list rather than a fading one. But how much you would put that down to either of these two drivers is, you know, I think probably open to debate. I think I follow Kevin's logic there, but uh, I, I would put uh, Jackie Stewart ahead of um, the next one on the list. Um, because should we, should we just very quickly introduce number two on the list before before we do that? Would that be helpful? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go. At number two, we've got Kev's got Pedro Rodriguez drove for BRM in 1968, again in 1970 and 71. Made some privateer entries as well in 1969. Uh, started 41 races for the team, 33 in the World Championship, eight outside it, taking two wins again, one in the championship and one outside it. So, Ian, back to you. Yeah. Well, um, for me, I suppose growing up at the time it was all happening, um, being involved to a missing extent. Um, Jackie Stewart's Formula One reputation begins with BRM. I know why Kevin says it begins with Tyrrell, because from 1968 onwards, um, Jackie Stewart drove for Tyrrell. The, the BRM, I know it wasn't the first single Formula One car he drove. He drove a Lotus um, in South Africa. But um, from the beginning of the 1965 season, um, you can see why Jackie Stewart had been so dominant in Formula Three. He, he got into Formula Two, only to F2, and he won races in that. Um, he was quick in anything he got into. Um, and for me, his, his reputation is up there with Fangio's um, as a driver. Uh, and I, I think that what he achieved in BRM, as Kevin has already summarised, uh, he, he showed himself to be obviously a future world champion, um, it, it, whether it was winning the International Trophy at Silverstone, whether it was winning the Italian Grand Prix, um, and just generally being there or thereabouts. And he had to cope with the H16 in his later days with BRM, one can speculate on how he would have got on with the P126 that, that Mike Spence then drove. But I, I still think Jackie Stewart was 
um, an outstanding BRM driver. Uh, and partly, I suppose, I, I know Kevin wants this to be focused more on what they achieved with BRM. But if you put Jackie Stewart and Pedro Rodriguez's careers side by side, well, Jackie Stewart for me is way ahead of Pedro Rodriguez as an overall driver, whether it's whatever it's in. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean that, that's that's definitely well. Uh, we we did a we did a special at the end of twenty seventeen. Who's the greatest British F one driver of all time? And I obviously gave myself the position of the judge on that, having let all the journalists do the hard work of writing the articles before it. And I picked Stuart. For me, he's probably in F one context. I'd say it's he's probably number one for me, which is a completely different. Uh, Completely different podcast yeah. debate and discussion, and obviously yeah. the longer Lewis goes on, the, long, the harder that that becomes as a position to maintain. But um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Jackie Stewart definitely ahead on the list. I think that the difficulty of this decision is demonstrated by the fact that when Ian did a draft list for this, he had JYS further down the list, well, not higher. So I was expecting him to argue argue Stewart uh, into a into a lower position. So as an average, we've ended up with uh, with third. But I, yeah, I'd be happy with him. Either way round, I guess just to talk about Rodriguez a little bit, um, he did. Yeah, he he was there for, for for more races. He had two stints, two stints there, um, and as I say, they they came back. So he's really there for his second stint. Um, although he did score three podiums and and had a fantastic French Grand Prix drive in 1968, but really is here because of what he did in the P153 and the P160. He was a fantastic racer. Tony Southgate said he didn't really Pedro just didn't care about qualifying. Uh, <laughs> he always knew he was he always knew he was in for a good race. Uh, if they were anywhere near the front of the grid because Pedro would only really turn it on for the race. He said, don't worry, I will overtake them all on the first lap, that sort of attitude, um, which I think Tony sort of quite quite enjoyed. Um, so he won the Belgian Grand Prix holding off holding off Chris Amon, and that was BRM's first world championship win for four years. So that was quite a significant moment as part of the new the new era of BRM, if you like, with Yardley sponsorship, Tony Southgate designing the car, obviously the 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 uprated V12 engine. Um, and then in 71 with the P160, I think he becomes he becomes one of the in terms of pace, one of the main challengers too. Jackie Stewart at Tyrrell. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we, I think we've talked Jackie Stewart up to second place, haven't we? Uh, and uh, there's not much more to... Well, uh, I'm very happy about that, Ian, because I had Jackie Stewart second in my initial draft list. Yeah. and oh, I, I've given it further is, thought yeah. and, and reflected on where he, where he fits in, Jackie Stewart, that is, with all the other BRM drivers we've been talking about. I, I think, really, it's, it's impossible not to put him second. Well, I think it's, uh, it's also probably not impossible to put the driver at number one in the number one spot. So let's get on to it. Uh, we mentioned him earlier with Jackie Stewart and others. Pretty clear number one because it's BRM's only world champion in 1962. That's the year the team also won the Constructors' Championship at number one. Graham Hill drove for BRM between 1960 and 1966, started 98 races for the team, 64 in the World Championship, 34 non-championship races. That is the most of any driver in this list. Uh, took 14 wins for BRM, 10 in the World Championship and four outside it. So, Kev, I mean, I don't need to ask why, but perhaps introduce Graham Hill, number one in uh, in your BRM, BRM Well, uh, we've said before, isn't it, how surprising it is that number one is so often on these list picks itself. And I think, like, you know, Graham Hill is so easy the number one BRM driver more starts more wins he took the driver's championship with them um uh, yeah I mean one of the top drivers of his of his era 
just, yeah, it was a very easy, you know, very easy number one. I suppose if you say the Jim Clark Lotus combination was the top one during the 1500 CCF1 era, Hill and BRM were, were the most consistent rival to that. See, they did manage to win the 1962 title, both of them. Um, you know, a little bit of luck in terms of Lotus unreliability, but BRM had had, and Graham himself had suffered enough of that. So I think probably yeah, that was that was fair enough. And then it was the main challenger. He was the main challenger through really 63 and 65. Obviously, John Surtees and Ferrari came into the equation uh, as well. 1964, he was actually very close to winning the World Championship. And actually, a little interesting stat, he, he and Alain Prost are the only two drivers to have lost the Drivers' Championship on the dropped scores rules because he actually scored uh, 41 points in 1964, but he was only allowed to keep 39, and John Surtees scored 40, so he lost the championship, and Alain Prost lost in 1988 because of the drop scores as well. Um, so, yeah, he was yeah he was the BRM team leader, drove it along, very fastidious note-taker, um, uh, yeah, just one of the top performers of that, that era. Um, don't really know what, what more to, to add, Ian. What, what do you think? <laughs> well, just a little bit more... Um flesh on the bones, I suppose, in the sense that um, he, he'd driven for Lotus. He got into Formula One with Lotus uh, in the late 50s, 1957, 58. Um, then moved to BRM for the 1960 season because he couldn't see that the front engine Lotus was going to be a success. Of course, Colin Chapman then produced the Lotus 18. One of the what-ifs is, what if Graham Hill had driven the Lotus 18 alongside Jim Clark? Where would, where would uh, there be? I suppose most people will say Jim Clark. Uh, was was better than Graham Hill, but I think Graham Hill is often talked down um, as, as being a hard grafter, uh, whereas Jim Clark had all the natural talent. If you look at the early days of Graham Hill's career, when he was coming up from the mid-50s in sports cars, the Lotus 11s and so on, Lotus 15s, he was extremely quick. I mean, he, he was a very, very fast driver. You wouldn't have achieved what he achieved um, had it not been for his his natural ability. Plus, he was a hard grafter. He worked very hardly, as Kevin just alluded to. He took notes uh, fastidiously. Uh, and, and the 1960 British Grand Prix uh, is the first race when he came very close to winning. In fact, one could argue that he should have won from the back of the grid. I mean, talk about Max Verstappen coming from 10th place. Graham Hill came from something like 27th or 28th place. Um, to and Ferrari presumes... Ferrari presumably didn't have an enormous pit stop strategy blunder to now Graham Hill to get to the front either, but I, I digress. <laughs> I, I have seen the front cover of Autosport this week, Kevin. I see what you say, yes. Um, <laughs> Ferrari blunders again in big red letters, it says. Um, so back, back to the main plot we're talking about. Yeah, he, he, he stalled the start of the, of the 1960 Grand Prix, along with Tony Brooks, actually, who was in the Yemen Credit Cooper, and they began working their way through the pack. And Graham got into the lead. Um, he overtaken everybody else, not just Ferrari, but all the other teams, all the Lotus and everything else. Uh, he was leading the race, and, and then the, the brakes were fading, as ever on a BRM. Uh, and uh, he misjudged braking as he was lapping a back marker, which was, I think, a Ferrari, going into uh, Cop's corner uh, and spun off. And so he had to wait another two years before he won the Grand Prix. Um, his his partnership with with uh, Tony Rudd, I think, was very very significant for BRM. Um, I, I doubt whether it would have been achieved if they'd had to carry on with Peter Burson um, in charge of the engineering side of BRM. But Graham Hill, um, in 1960, with Joe Bonnier and Dan Gurney as his um, teammates, uh, saw that they couldn't carry on with Burson 
Uh, they had to get Tony Rudd in charge. Uh, although that put Tony Brooks's nose out of joint in 1961, that was the, uh, the way that uh, BRM became a championship winning team. Uh, and when you think about his races at Monaco, um, sometimes in the absence of Jim Clark, I know, but nonetheless, you know, the, the occasion when he went straight on the chicane, uh, hopped out of the car, push started it to get going in the race again. Imagine that happening today. Um, oh, he, he was, uh, for me, he's, he's knocking on the door of one of the old time greats, Graham Hill, whatever comparisons you make, but he, he, he was a hugely talented driver. Yeah, I completely agree. And if we're picking out, I was going to say, actually, if we're picking out moments, I would say his win at Monaco in 65 that that Ian was just talking about. And also his win in pretty challenging conditions at the Nürburgring in 1962 with with John Surtees and Dan Gurney behind him the whole race. And after a massive crash in practice that wasn't his fault. I think those are two of the all-time great Grand Prix drives. Um, I think that they, they, you know, they would be candidates wh- whichever way you slice it. So, yeah, uh, this was a uh, and just that comparison with Clark. Just to go back to that, that they actually the gap between them wasn't as enormous as people think at Lotus in '67. The reason it looks so Clark did have the upper hand, but it, the reason it looks so disastrous from Hill's point of view is because the car never finished. You know, he should have won two or three rounds. I mean, they should have wrapped up that championship easily between the, the, those two. I mean, it's a super team, isn't it? The, there were two of the great drivers yes. of the era and probably the greatest F1 engine of all time, and Lotus managed to lose both titles. Um, but yeah, so I, no, I completely agree, Graham. Graham. Graham Hill's up there, and Fernando Alonso's still trying to chase him for the for the hill triple crown of Indy 500, Monaco and Le Mans. So, uh, uh, and what we haven't actually touched on, which I was, we're talking about the effect that a driver has on a team's morale, uh, talking about Richard Atwood um, uh, after Mike Spencer's death. But uh, in 1968, um, of course, after Jim Clark's death, um, Graham Hill, um, as Damon did many years later, um, Graham Hill uh, drove the team back into competitiveness um, uh, and went on and won the World Championship that year, um, the year in which they'd lost um, you know, the great Jim Clark. So, yeah, kind of we're heading in this direction, quite obviously. Um, Graham Hill is, is, to my mind, head, as a BRM driver, head and shoulders above all of the others. Indeed. Well, guys, thank you very much. Kev, Ian, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, everybody. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or free. Prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Who listened along. If you enjoyed it, please let us know. Drop us an email. Hit us up on social media. Thank you very much. And we'll be back soon with a new episode of the Autosport Podcast. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 
winner. AT&T Fiber presents a straightforward moment. Your wine? Thanks. I'll pretend I know what I'm doing before saying it's good. And I'll pretend I don't know you're pretending. Are you a gagillionaire? Yeah, I have AT&T Fiber. The straightforward pricing has inspired me to be more straightforward. Me too. Ugh, this wine. I'll fetch you a better one. Straightforward is better. No equipment fees, no data caps, no price increase at 12 months. Live like a gagillionaire with AT&T Fiber. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.